0: Perfect. So we're going through First John, and um, you know I, I think that's been quite a blessing for us. And right now we're coming to a point when John begins his first imperative. We haven't had him say to us, "Okay, do this, don't do that." Instead, he's shown us a lot of dichotomies: light versus darkness. Um, those who are in one are not in the other, and he's shown us this quite frequently. So now let's go ahead and see where he's leading us with these verses. Verses 12 through 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So John continues his letter by going to, in his own way, a personal greeting. Some might find it a little odd that he has waited until this point to add this personal greeting, especially when we consider our own form of writing when we greet people at the beginning of our letters. At the same time, though, when we consider Paul in Romans, he didn't actually add his personal greetings until the last chapter, chapter 16. Regardless of the location, scholars tend to know that this, this is his personal greeting to the churches who will receive his letter. And at this point, we wonder, whom is he addressing? We notice John focuses on three particular groups. Little children or children, um, fathers, and young men. He does this the same order twice, and it gives us an interesting parallelism. But this should cause us to ask, who are the children? Who are the fathers? And who are the young men? There are different interpretations to this. Some hold that John is writing to three different groups within the churches. Children, adults, and young adults. This is possible, but it doesn't explain why he jumps from the youngest group to the oldest group just to go back to the middle group, Um, when it would make more sense for the progression to begin with the youngest, then the young, and then the older. Another possible explanation, then, is that these three represent spiritual stages in a Christian's life. We begin as children in the faith, then we slowly mature in our faith. Therefore, John is writing to those who are at different stages within the faith. Now, this is definitely possible, especially since he adds the theological truths to each group. Yet this, too, falls prey to the same issue as the previous. Why doesn't he progress um, from child, the youngest, to young men, the middle, and then the fathers, the oldest, instead of what he does in the letter, which is children, oldest, fathers, and then um, young men? Why doesn't he do that? It's because of this issue that I tend to agree with some who hold that John does not write to one group, nor does he write to three groups, but he writes to two groups. Um, This view holds that John writes to everyone when he says little children. He has already expressed such endearment within the letter and will continue to call his readers his children, regardless of their age. So for him to begin this way indicates this love and affection he has for those whom he considers in his care, and again, regardless of their age. This also makes sense for the theological truths, which are that their sins are forgiven and they know the Father. Regardless of your age within the Christian community, if you are in Christ, these things are true. So this leaves us with two other groups. The first is being fathers, representing the older generation, and the second is young men, representing the younger generation. Concerning the fathers, the Greek term is pater. Um, in that particular culture, father, the father figure held honor and respect. By using this term, John is focusing on those individuals who are older and have wisdom and experience. By appealing to them in this way, it reminds these elders to care for the younger generation, recognizing their responsibility to the younger generation in the faith. Now concerning their theological truth, he says, you know him who was from the beginning. He says this twice. This knowledge is true knowledge of God, which is opposed to the false knowledge found in the previous verses that we've discussed already, um, last week and the week before. Likewise, it it does definitely, or at least it likely, references Christ, who according to the Gospel of John, was from the beginning with God and was God. Now, for those who do not fall into this former category of the older generation, are the young men, which comes from the Greek word niniskas. This term is used for those who are between the ages of 22 to 28 years of age, give or take. Um, This is an age both back then and even now when you think about it, of high energy and idealism. John describes them as thus because they're likely younger age-wise, but also newcomers to the faith. Their theological truth is that they have overcome the evil one. He says that twice, and then the second time he says, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. There's a few things to notice here. The strength which they have can either represent their youthful strength, but um, the strength that can come from within, or it can represent the strength of God through them. We can't be certain which one John has in view here, though the latter or both would make sense. Likewise, the Word of God likely represents Christ's ministry and life. However, it can also include the Old Testament and the apostolic teachings on Christ. All of this would likely include the Word of God, which culminates in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Finally, we notice that they have victory. Um, When we consider it, their victory, their ability to overcome, and perhaps even their strength, abides in Christ, who is the Word, who abides in them. Christ's victory, then, is their victory. As Christ has has conquered the evil one, so they conquer the evil one through Christ. As a last thought, we do also notice John uses two different terms to show that he is writing. I know that sounds weird, but let's just see where this goes. In the first half, he says that he is writing, and in the second half, he writes says I write. Um, there is likely some different emphasis. With the two different words in the Greek, the one in the first half may be used to display urgency or purpose, whereas the latter word is used as an expression for the act of writing itself, and that's according to Yarbrough, though this is all debatable and we're not 100% certain why he uses two different terms for writing and to write, and I know no one. it doesn't matter. So let's go ahead to verse 15. (laughs) Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's verses like these that we must be careful. John tells us that we must not love the world. The questions we want to ask is, what does this mean? In particular, what does love mean here, and what does the world mean here? Some might hold that we are to reject all things in the world and to seek only the spiritual. The problem with that is that it's too platonic. There, where the emphasis is placed between physical and spiritual. The truth is, both were cre- originally created good by God, and both have good qualities. So when we look at love and world here, it is best to understand them in this context. The term love could be better understood as affections. We are not to place our affections or be content with the world. The term world can be understood as the domain of darkness. Um, The world is a place where false prophets come, where sin abounds, where evil takes root. It is in this sense which John encourages his readers not to have affections or commitment with. The warning John has is that if anyone does love the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. We can already surmise what it means to love the world, but what does John mean with the second half? We notice that it is the love of the Father rather than love for the Father. Instead, it recognizes that the Father's personal love is not with the individual who loves the world. It is His love, not their love for Him. Hence, if one loves the darkness, they do not have the love of God in them. Because of this, it is impossible for them to also love God. One cannot love both darkness and light. Therefore, the love of of God is absent in all cases, both the love of God for the individual and the love of the individual for God. Yes, that's going to be an application point, so we'll see. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. John now specifies what it is that is considered of the world. He lists three things in particular. The first is the desires of the flesh. The flesh here represents the darkness which is in us. Jesus recognizes the things of the heart, as he says um, in Matthew 15. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It represents the base human nature apart from the grace of God, the sinfulness which we crave within us apart from Christ. Now the desires of the eyes represent that which our hearts would have us look at. Christ taught, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And that comes from Matthew six twenty-two through 23. Where we place our gaze can often be the direction that our feet will travel. This is both literal and metaphorical. When our eyes desire darkness, so our inwards will also seek the darkness, and we will likely end up in the darkness. Finally, John focuses on the pride of life. Um, And what does this mean exactly? Are we to renounce any and all pride in this life? It is best interpreted to understand the pride of possessions or the pride of seeking after things rather than God. And a good example will be the rich young ruler when Christ comes to him and says, get rid of all of your possessions and follow me. And the rich young ruler just goes away sad. That's a good example of that. Instead of giving our lives to pursuing after God, while we're in the darkness, we pursue things of this life. These three things are not of God. To live in this way is to live in a way which is contrary to the will of the Father, and instead lives according to the will of the world. The will of the world is to sin, and sin is toxic. We are amidst a struggle of allegiance. Will we give our allegiance to the world, or to the Father? We cannot choose both. It is either one or the other. We now come to the final verse, and that's verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. While it is true that the world has some strength, we should not be disheartened. For now we learn that though the world may have its desires, because of the light of Christ, the darkness is passing away. The world is passing away. The desires of the flesh are passing away. The desires of the eyes and the pride of life. All of these things are passing away. In this sense, it means that there will come a time when the destruction of these things will be complete, and that destruction has already begun with the coming of Christ. So while the world may seem infinite, and while they may seem ultimate, the truth is is that they're not. In the end, the light will overcome, and the darkness will dissipate forever. At the same time, whoever does the will of the Father abides forever, Again, we have a dichotomy between light and darkness. Again, the will of God versus the will of the world. What we can be sure of with John is that while the world may be passing away, the will of God does not. Because his will does not pass away, we can come to the conclusion that those who follow along in that will, in his will, are not going to pass away either. Whether John has an eschatological end times view in all of this, or present here and now, understanding is not clear. John may simply have both in view. When we consider the Christian life, it can be at the current time in their life the world is passing away along with its desires. At the same time for the Christian, when we do the will of the Father here and now, we receive the blessing of abiding with God here and now and then forever. In any case, the point is that we are to refrain from the sandy foundations of the world, which will pass away, and build upon the solid foundation of the will of God, which is eternal. And this leads us to the main point. The main point of this section is for John to focus on those whom he is writing to. He does this through a personal greeting that is not too personal to exclude anyone. Likewise, following directly from this greeting, he gives an imperative concerning our lifestyles. They should not be defined by the desires and the will of the world, but instead should be defined by the glory and the will of God. And now this leads us to our application points, the physical versus the spiritual. In this text, we saw how John warns us about the world. The desires of the world are then elaborated on as we have recently seen. The question we want to ask ourselves is, does John mean all of the world when he talks about it as he does? Are we supposed to get rid of everything and live like hermits? David might be thinking yes. Some have concluded that this is the case. You can go look at the Desert Fathers and you can see that. But before we do, we want to remember a few things. The first is that though this world has fallen because of the fall of humanity, we need to remember that it is originally created by God. And it was considered good. All too often we can look at the world around us and think that um, of nature as complete and total evil. Yet that is not the case, at least not as it was created originally. The second is that though the world has fallen, it can still glorify God. God is glorified through the heavens. He is glorified through nature which attests to his being. This is still God's world despite the fall. While there are many things that do go wrong in the world, in the end we cannot assume that God wants us to ignore all the beauty and all the wonder around us, especially not when so much of it is calling us to worship and to glorify him. It's with these things in mind that I think we need to be careful Sometimes we have this platonic view of Christianity. And what I mean is that Plato, the the Greek philosopher, taught that there was a physical and a spiritual. And the physical was considered bad, and the spiritual was considered good. Many times, we have this same view of creation. We place creation rather low, and then the spiritual rather high. Um, Yet the truth... "...is when we consider what God has made, when we consider our own bodies even, it is hard for us to come to the conclusion that such a dichotomy exists. The truth is, the things of the world, the darkness of the world, that is bad. But the world itself is not. The world itself is created by God and has great purpose. It is not the physical that is bad and the spiritual good. Instead, both are in need of redemption by Christ." And when redeemed by Christ, both are good and made new again. This means that we should enjoy things of creation. We aren't meant to be hermits, no offense David, who hate the world. We should desire to see reconciliation with it. Consider what Paul says in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Right away, that's a lot to say about creation. But he continues, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves... Who have the, the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Notice, the creation itself is aching for freedom. And it will receive this freedom through Christ, and because we are in Christ, through us. Too often we have this view that we are just bodies with souls, and the soul is all that really matters. But this text right here argues against that. Our bodies, our physical bodies, are aching to be redeemed as well. If we are in Christ, then we can be sure that our hope for such a reconciliation between body and spirit, the two were always meant to be together. Otherwise, Adam would not have been made with a physical body as he was, and we were and are. So again, we need to be cautious. We need to not reject all the physical joys of life. There are some in the past and in the present who have done this to such a degree that they have rejected the joys of, let's say, sex or food or drink. Yet these things can be enjoyed when they are placed in their proper context, under the lordship of Christ. When they are not abused as the way the flesh often abuses. It's with this that I recommend everyone take a good look at the beautiful world around you. Enjoy it for the glory of God. Enjoy the fresh air, the mountains, the stars. Enjoy your relationships. Enjoy the body God has given you. Even though it is decaying, we have hope that it will be redeemed in full. Just as Christ was raised physically from the dead, so we shall be raised physically as well. While the world is dark, it will be bathed in the light of Christ, and all that the light of Christ touches can be redeemed and reconciled to God. So be light and be used by God to reconcile these physical things. The physical is not something which is to be rejected. It is something which is to be redeemed and enjoyed for the glory of God. Now, let's lead us to our second point. God is love. We have heard this many times in our lives. In fact, It is in this letter that most people quote to us the very true fact that God is love. Most people will take that and run away in a bad way. They will come to the conclusion that it does not matter how they live because God is love. Bad theology comes out of this phrase, God is love. For example, have any of you ever thought or been asked, if God is love, then how can he send people to hell? Well, today we actually got a glimpse of this, and so it will be wise for us to consider it. So how is it possible for God to be both loving and judging at the same time? The answer lies in our often misunderstanding of what it means for God to love. When we consider it, we kind of automatically assume that the love of God is pretty straightforward and that he loves all people the same completely. Now, this is entirely true. There is a sense in which God does love all people the same. However, what we want to realize is that he does also not love all people the same. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor, I think antithetically, which means what you just said goes against my reasoning because it's a contradiction. To this, I will respond, not really. You see, this is the problem we have with the English definition of love, We use love to describe a great many things. For example, some of you have animals and you love your animals. Cats a little too much. Some of you have a house and you love your house. Some of you have unique abilities and you love them. You can sing, you can dance, you can um, use your mind in certain ways, logic or even art. Some of you have family and you love them. Now would you say that all of these loves are the same? Is your love for your house the same as your love for your family? Is your love for your cat the same as your love for your kids or your spouse? Please don't answer yes to that. <laughs> Even then, is your love for your spouse the same as your love for your kids? I think all of us would say, hopefully, no. It's all of these. There are different kinds of love we have for these various things in our lives. So it is, with this, we consider the love of God. Earlier we saw if we remain in darkness, we do not have the love of God. There I said that this means if you dwell in darkness, you are not loved by God. At that point, I should have made an asterisk. But I decided not because it's fun to keep you guessing. So what does that mean? What does it mean for those who are in darkness to not have the love of God? Well, it means this. God does love everyone the same. He loves all of us in the same way a painter would love his paintings. He loves all of us the same way a sculptor would love their sculpture. The same way an author would love their writings. He loves all of us in a way which reflects that we are created beings. He loves his creation. He loves all of us in this way because every person is created in his image. Therefore, he loves all of us as he loves something beautiful, as he loves his masterpiece. However, he also does not love everyone the same way. Why is that? Because he loves those who are in his Son as he loves his Son. Consider what Paul says later in the same chapter in Romans, Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? Shall tribulations, or distress, or persecutions, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now some will say, that's beautiful, the love of God for everyone. Yet, if you say that, you're missing what is being said. Consider the very last verse again very carefully. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God In Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see what is happening? This love is not for all people everywhere. It is for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is in Him we find this love. It is in Him we are able to look to God our Father and say our Father. The simple reality is that those who believe that all people are children of God do not understand the significance of their statement. Not all people are children of God. All people are created in his image, but being created is not the same as being begotten. And being created is not the same as being adopted. We are adopted if we are in Christ. If we are in Christ, we have the love of the Father. And this love is given to all who are in Christ. Do you know what is so beautiful about this love? That this love is reserved for one person, and that is for Jesus Christ. Yet God in his glory, in his wisdom, in his grace, in his mercy, in his infinite love, adopts us as our own children. He loves us as if we were Christ his son. Do you know how wonderful a statement that is? That God considers you his child and loves you as his child. He looks at you and sees Jesus Christ. That's st- That's a statement which should cause us all to stand up and shout for joy. So when we read today that the love of God is not in the person who loves darkness, this is what John means. It means that this individual is not loved by God as he loves his son. Just as if you were a writer or a painter or a sculptor, you would love the works of your hands. Yet when you compare it to the love for you have for your children, you will find it almost incomparable. A good analogy I once heard is that if you were an artist with kids and there was a fire in your house, which would you save? Would you save your art or would you save your children? I'm really hoping you're going to say children because that's the truth, isn't it? This is the same with God. There is a fire. God will save his children. That is how God can love all of creation and yet not save everyone. Not everyone is a child of God, but those who are will certainly be saved. Those who do the will of God the Father will find an eternity of grace and love rather than a collapsing darkness around them. As children of God, we are to seek the will of God. So that is my encouragement to you in all of this. If you are in Christ, then the love of God is in you and it is beautiful and perfect and it is even perfecting you. At the same time, seek to spread the gospel so that those who are in the darkness would come to the light. That those who are merely creations will become adopted sons and daughters of God Most High in His great love, a love reserved only for His Son. God's love for His Son will never run out. So place yourself in Christ and seek to glorify Him with all of this life. Now this leads us to our third point, old and young. As a short note that ended up being a, I guess actually it's a fairly average note, I thought it would be a good idea for us to reflect on the individuals John has written to. We noticed the age groups in particular, the old and the young. The older identified as fathers, and the young as the young men. There's a way it seems right to identify these both biologically and spiritually. The truth is, there are those who are younger in the faith versus those who are older in the faith. We always have new generations coming into the world, and that means that those who are not new are older generations. In both, there is responsibility. The younger generation has a responsibility to remain faithful to the truth which was proclaimed to them. They are to remember that their own strength is not truly their own, but is found in Jesus Christ. They are able to conquer through Christ. Likewise, this is true of the older generation. They are to remember the one whom they have believed. John specifically uses the word fathers to describe this older generation. This reflects their call to reflect the love of the father on the younger generation. They have a responsibility to love those of the younger generation and urge them to pursue Christ. That is what you fathers of the faith are meant to do, to be fathers and nurture the younger generation. Now I know all of you are thinking, and by all of you, half of you. It is unfair that you will be talking about fathers on Mother's Day. Talk about fathers when it's their day. Talk about mothers now. Alright, let's talk about mothers. It is true that the word Paul uses here in the Greek is for fathers, pater. Um, But the truth is, This is one of those times when the whole gender-neutral thing isn't an issue. There are definitely times when the scriptures purposefully, let's say, state sons rather than daughters for a reason. But in this case, the same effects apply for women as it does for men. The difference being that women are mothers rather than fathers. And as one person, one of my commentators said, simply put, any Christian who will allow themselves to be addressed in this text are willing, welcome to what John is saying. So, mothers, your charge is the same as the father's. Believe it or not, but you mothers are not only of your biological children, but also of us in the younger generation of Christians. You're the ones we look up to. The young women look up to you to see how they should live in Christ as a woman, and young men look up to you to see what they should seek in a godly wife. You mothers are important just as important as the fathers when it comes to the church. It is on your shoulders on which the younger generation stands. Today, we celebrate mothers. Today, we celebrate those who have conceived and given birth, to those who have adopted children. But I'm going to take it a step further and say that we also celebrate the women who are spiritual mothers. You mothers who have nurtured this younger generation of Christians who have taken all of us and watched over us and who have led us, who guide us, and encourage us on the path of righteousness. We celebrate you who seek godliness. We give thanks for you because you have continued on in the faith, knowing the one who has called you to himself, for the love of God given to you and the love you have for the God who gives. Mothers, we celebrate you. I, celebrate you as a young pastor in an older congregation i can say i have many spiritual mothers to look up to betsy and ellen they're not here go figure like to lay claim to me but the truth is all of you beautiful older women are my spiritual mothers whom i have learned so much about god and about family and about love and even myself so to all of you i say thank you on behalf of the children you've raised, I say thank you. On behalf of the husbands you've had to put up with, I say thank you. Now men, can you turn to a woman and say thank you? <laughs> Go ahead, turn, say thank you to somebody. Just say thanks out loud, thank thanks. You. Thank you, Mike. Knew someone would actually, Mike says thank you. The rest of you are goodness gracious. The truth is, is that you're all a gift given to us by God. All of you women of the older generation of Christians are mothers, whether biologically or not. We will continue to look to you and be thankful for all that God has done through you. Celebrate today, you mothers. Celebrate all that God has accomplished through you. And again, I say thank you for your faith, because it is an encouragement to us all. Now, it's in all of this that we give thanks for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through Him we are able to be called children of God. It is by Him we are able to know our Father, and by Him we have victory in this life. It is because of Him we are able to have this great family of believers who celebrate with us and mourn with us while we travel this road of faith and who encourage us to walk in the light rather than the darkness. It's all because of Him. And this gospel begins with our origins. In the beginning was God. He created the cosmos according to the power of his word. Last of all, he created humanity to bear his image. It is because God is a God of love, reason, he knows, can be known, has personhood, morality, and displays Hesed, we can as well. It is here we find sanctity, dignity, and worth to human life. Like God, however, we are also able to choose. We could either choose to follow God in obedience into life or sin in disobedience into death. We chose the latter and have continued to make that choice ever since. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. It is because of our sin we continue to accrue a greater and greater moral guilt before our God every day. And not a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before a righteous judge. Thankfully, God did not leave us in the darkness forever. Instead, he sent his light and spoke his word into the darkness, and that was his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is by his blood we are bought and redeemed. It is through Christ our relationships can be begin to restore. His victory in life over death becomes our victory in life over death. All that is required of us is two things. The first is repentance We are not to live in a sinful lifestyle. Instead, we are to live a repentant lifestyle, which is characterized by seeking to glorify God in our lives. We are to turn away from our sin and turn toward God. We are to live according to the will of God, which is made known to us through Christ and the Scriptures, by which we know to walk in step with the Spirit in love. The second is faith in Christ. While it is true that we are to live according to the glory of God, we also recognize our complete and total dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. It is not what we do which saves us, but what Christ has done. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. For those who remain disobedient in these things, there is only judgment. Even our greatest deeds are as filthy rags before our holy and just God. Therefore... They will face judgment for their sins if they do not repent and place their faith in Christ for there is no salvation apart from Christ. For those who are obedient, there is no longer condemnation. However, instead, they are made sons and daughters of God Most High. They experience the love of God reserved only for those who are in Christ Jesus. They will be glorified and become co-heirs of an eternal kingdom where they will experience the peace of God forevermore. My hope is that we would continue to be a people who seek to know the light of our God and seek to chase out the darkness by the power of this light. Be encouraged by the message we have heard. Take heart to stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that it is through Christ that this light will shine forever. Not only can we know of the light, but we can experience the light and shine the light of Christ by proclaiming his gospel. In this way, we can be reconcilers to, in a world in need of reconciliation. It is not our might which allows us to do it, but the might of Jesus Christ within us. Go out and celebrate and enjoy the God and the creation he has made and the mothers and fathers he has given us. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. You have truly given us a great light, and it is chasing out the darkness within our hearts. We ask that you would continue to keep this light on us, that you would continue to have us to walk in step with your Son, Jesus Christ, in step with the Spirit. And Lord, we also especially raise up today those who have come before us, those blessed mothers of the faith on whose shoulders we stand. We thank you for them. And Lord, we ask that today you would give them especially peace and grace and love. In your Son's name, amen. Please rise as we sing Amazing Grace.